Well, I'd, I'd like to begin just by, by telling you a story. It's a true story about God's people and, and really how, in, in many ways, it all began. Because when Israel first entered Egypt uh, as, a, as a country, Egypt was, it didn't know who, the, who you know, weren't, weren't, weren't aware of them. And yet this guy, Joseph, became very prominent in Egypt. And eventually, because of a great famine, uh, Israel ends up there in Egypt. And they were welcomed. Uh, but then generations passed by, and they became enslaved, and they cried out to God, and God had mercy on them, and he rescued them from Egypt by his power using a leader named Moses. And through Moses, God told the Israelites, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And, and God gave to Israel the land of Canaan. And uh, their greatest king you know, they, they wanted a king, and it was a sinful reason that they wanted a king, but God worked through that and used it, and, uh, and, and, and though they had a lousy king at first, King Saul, eventually King David came to be their ruler. He was the greatest king. God brought peace and prosperity to Israel through his reign. David was the man after God's own heart. David's son Solomon then came to rule, and, and he was famous for his wisdom, but um, sadly, he not only married many foreign wives, but he allowed foreign gods to ensnare his heart. And, uh, and then Solomon would be succeeded by his son Rehoboam. And, and Rehoboam would kind of extend the, the rule of the kingship into cruelty, and, and very much a slave labor program. And that brought up a, a big rebellion under the leadership of, of someone named Jeroboam. And at that point, the kingdom was divided. The 12 tribes of, of Israel divided into two kingdoms. Ten of the northern tribes formed a separate nation under Jeroboam I, while the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained under David's dynasty. And during the time of, of this division, uh, there was uh, Israel, was what the northern kingdom was referred to, uh, was, was, uh, had Samaria as its capital. And then the two southern tribes, were, they called themselves Judah after the larger tribe, and their capital was Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and Jeroboam got the new northern nation of Israel off to a really bad start because he didn't want the people having to travel south to Jerusalem to worship. And so what he did is he erected two golden calves, Interesting that that was just brought up. <laughs> Good job, Zach. But that's what happened. Two golden calves. One at, at, at Dan in the northern part of the kingdom and then another at Bethel in the south. And so these self-invented idols kind of became the focus of Israelite worship. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah continued to be ruled by the family of David. Um, and uh, there were five kings. Um, that, there were several kings that came after David. I'm sorry, from David's line, from David's family in the southern kingdom. Uh, and, and there were various ways in which they would lead. The, the thing about the northern kingdom was, essentially, it became just a bunch of coups, one after the other. Five kings after Jeroboam all came to power through bloodshed. Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Timni. And none of them did anything to stop the idolatry of that kingdom. Uh, Omri wanted to establish a dynasty when he became king in 80 BC after five years of civil war. But his dynasty was cruel and wicked, and then he would be succeeded by his son Ahab. Uh, one of Ahab's palaces was in a place known as Jezreel. And it was there that he wanted to gain a certain vineyard. The owner of that vineyard was uh, Naboth. And so Ahab would have Naboth falsely accused and then murdered. And uh, that kind of became the, the, the picture of the abuse of power in Israel's history. We find that in 1 Kings 21. Ahab's wife, her name was Jezebel. Maybe you've heard of her. Uh, her name was synonymous with idolatry, spiritual adultery, cruelty, and bloodshed. And together, what they did is they basically made Baal worship the state religion of the northern kingdom. That was, that was their goal. Baal was their lord and master. And he was the god of the Canaanites. And he took a lot of different forms. Sometimes he would be spoken of in a plural way as the Baals, 
or Baalim, that's the, the, the im is the plural form there. Uh, but Baal worship was essentially a fertility religion. And so they would worship Baal in order to have crops. And oftentimes uh, cult prostitution would be a part of that to bring along this, this kind of fertility. And, and of course, the move towards Baal was opposed by the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And we hear of those accounts uh, there in, in various sections in the Old Testament. But we, we would see the Ahab being succeeded by his children, Ahaziah and Joram. And yet God raised up an officer from the army. His name is Jehu. And, and what he did was he, he actually brought down uh, that rule and that line. Uh, Jehu is the guy who's, who's famous, I think, for saying, come, see my zeal for the Lord. And then he just went out and just killed a bunch of uh, false worshipers of Baal. You know, and that was kind of his, the way he, he, he did things. So, but then what Jehu did is he took power into his own hands through that great bloodshed. And at their palace in Jezreel, Jehu slaughtered all the leading figures of Ahab's family. And, 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 and uh, Jezreel kind of became known as the place of bloodshed. And then Jehu was succeeded by a son and a grandson and a great-grandson. And then four generations of Jehu's family ruled over Israel. But uh, sadly, Jehu's family and the way they ruled was a little better than Omri and Ahab. Um, see, Jehu did remove Baal worship, but he replaced it with other forms of idolatry. And after that time, the fertility cult of Baalism kind of made a comeback on a bigger scale. Uh, Jehu's great-grandson, Jeroboam II, ruled for 40 years, and his reign was a reign of prosperity and peace. It was kind of like a golden age. Some people hearkened it back to the ages of David and Solomon. Everything looked great from a cultural level, on an economic level, on the level of just people being able to enjoy their, their kind of daily lives. But then one day, God called a man named Hosea, a man no one had ever heard of before. The year's about 740 B.C. And God speaks to him and calls out Israel for their idolatry. And uh, that's the cultural context in which we find the book of Hosea starting. It's a time of prosperity that led to complacency. And this spiritual complacency led to spiritual infidelity. And it's a time that God's going to bring to a close by his judgment. So let's go ahead and, and open, if we would, to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. And we'll begin together by reading verses 1 through 9. And as God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Hosea 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, son of Barry, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, <clears throat> during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ramah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And when she had weaned Lo-Ramah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to, 
grow to understand not only this time in, in the history of, of your people, Israel, but also your instruction to us today as those grafted in through the work of the Messiah, Jesus. Help us to grasp and see the lessons you have for us and grace us not only to understand them and to hear them, but also to live in a different way because of your word and your spirit's work through your word in our hearts right now. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Uh, You know, it's fascinating, uh, and Eric mentioned it before, Last week, uh, we were in 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 22, or chapter 10, verse 22, we talked about God's jealousy. And if you were with us, you'll remember, uh, we noted how, when we think of God's jealousy, oftentimes we'll, we'll kind of liken it to human jealousy, petty jealousy. Oh, I don't like, you're paying more attention to them than to me, you should pay more attention to me, and on and on it goes. Uh, and we discussed at length the fact that, no, God's jealousy is different in that it's a holy jealousy. It's based upon uh, who he is as God, his character. It's based upon what he rightfully deserves from us as his people. And it's not just simply a a, a petty jealousy that that is just all about um, some sort of selfish motive for attention. Instead, no, God's, God's jealousy reflects and comes from the reservoirs of his holy love. Uh, His holy other than than, uh, us, his set apart, his pure, his perfect love flows toward us. And when we do not respond to that in the way that reflects who he is and what he's done, he is jealous in a holy way because he really does deserve all affection, all worship, all glory, unlike us. Uh, And I want you to know that... uh, We were planning on starting the book of Hosea. I probably put that in the schedule in January. Okay? Um, A lot of things change through the year as different things come up. So that schedule is kind of a thing that modulates a little bit. For example, sometimes this may surprise you. I go long. Have you noticed that? So I'll, 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 oh, I got to spend two weeks on this. So that'll adjust. Boop, boop, boop. That changes. Other times we have guest speakers coming in. We're glad to have them. We're grateful for them. So that'll change things. Boop, boop. And it'll line things up. I had no idea, in other words, I'd be talking about, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God's jealousy. And that would lead us directly into the book of Hosea. And yet here we are. So the Lord wants us on this. He wants us talking about this. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So really what we find here in this passage are, uh, uh, first of all, reasons for God's holy jealousy. Um, and we're going to see there's two of them. And the first is this. Um, idolatry is spiritual adultery against God. Idolatry is spiritual adultery against God. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. It comes to the prophet Hosea. You'll notice there's several different king's reigns that are going on here in both northern and southern kingdoms. And some have said, hey, how's it possible to have this guy prophesying through such a large span of time? Well, here's the thing. Uh, When you do the math and you work it out, during the days of Uzziah, It could have been toward the latter portion of his reign. And then when you look at the last king listed, it could have been toward the beginning, meaning it would be a a span of about 50 years. Um, So he had a long time of prophesying for sure. But it works out. I mean, the math totally works on that. He's a prophet of God. What does that mean? It means God spoke directly to him. That means when he spoke, thus saith the Lord, he is speaking on behalf of of God, and he is saying the words that God has given him. Um, and and uh, we notice that when God, when God first speaks to him, notice verse 2, then the Lord first spoke through Hosea, here's what he says, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry. If, that was, if you're the prophet, that's the first thing. Like, really, that's the first thing. That's the first thing. <sighs> okay, Lord. 
Wow. Uh, and, you're, and you look at that at first, you're going, this just got to be, he didn't really have to do that. That's just, God's just making sort of analogies. Some, some scholars will try to do Like, he didn't really have to do that. Uh, no, if you read the passage and you do the work, guess what? He did. And this is one of the ways with, in which prophets of the Old Testament worked. And we, we don't always see this in every Old Testament prophet. But there are times when God will use a physical action or the life of his prophet to depict a spiritual reality. And in this case, that's what he does. It's a picture He's drawing a picture and he's going, Jose, I'm going to use your life to draw this picture. And he's going to um, show something about the people of God and their relationship with God through this picture in his prophets, by using the prophet's life as an analogy in some ways. But it's literal. The prophet is really doing this. And he immediately explains why. He doesn't just say, go do this. Get a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. Go, go do that. He tells them why. Notice verse 2, the second portion. For, here's the reason why, the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. Uh, The word forsaken there literally means to be walking away from. And of course, everything leading up to this prophecy, you can see why. Baal worship is everywhere. It's a time of prosperity. Things are easy for people. It seems super easy to forsake God or turn away from God when life's simple and easy, isn't it? And so he's saying, your life is going to be a picture of my people and as they commit harlotry, as they are unfaithful, as they are adulterous with other gods, you're going to show this by your life. So we would call this, uh, if you're looking at prophecy and the way prophets work, this is a sign act that Hosea is bringing about. What you're doing, Hosea, as my prophet, is an action, and it's a sign for my people, and it's going to physically show in your life their faithlessness and the rupture that's happening between Israel and God. And it's also showing something else. It's calling us into this place of understanding God's heart more in this whole thing. Again, This covenant that he has with his people, it's not merely a legal covenant. It is legal. But it's not just that. It's not just a business arrangement. It's not just some sort of thing where you kind of go into the legal library and pull out the volumes and go, this precedent leads to that, leads to that. Okay, boom, that's the right thing and move on. That's not it. This is a relationship. This is personal. This involves sacrifice and affection and care. This is like a marriage. Hosea's obedience is immediate. Verse 3, so he went. He did it. He took Gomer. She bore him a son. Was she an adulteress at that time? No. No. From all indications, it's that this was going to happen in the future. He took a wife to himself by prophecy, understanding what would happen, but that's not what she was doing at the time. And uh, she conceived and bore a son. And notice, remember the whole thing we went through uh, as we were setting things up, that initial introductory story. The Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. Why would God do that? What was Jezreel? We just talked about it. Jezreel was the place where Jehu took care of Ahab's descendants. Lots of bloodshed. And that's the key word. Lots of bloodshed. And then Jehu didn't do what was right before God. Bloodshed. Jezreel is really in a a valley plain between the mountains of Samaria and Galilee. It's very close to the valley of Megiddo. Lots of battles have happened there. We're told, actually, that the final battle, uh, the Battle of Armageddon, is also going to be taking place in that location. So it's a, it's, a, it's a known area of bloodshed and war. Uh, marching armies were always working out ways they were going to maneuver through that area. And so the main point is that the word Jezreel, in light of its history, was a term that had become synonymous with bloodshed. 
Uh, we, we've got similar words in our culture, too. If I, for example, if I say to you, Watergate, what do you think of? Oh, political corruption. Right? But you, you kind of feel bad. No, I don't really feel bad. I was going to say I did, but I don't. Um, but you, the Watergate Hotel, it's, it's a hotel, folks. <laughs> you know? That's what it was. Just, it just so happens to be that that was the place where um, the, the, the Democratic Party Watergate office complex, that was, that was where it all happened. So it's a building. But we know it to mean corruption. Why? Because that's where Nixon's people did their, their, their stuff to try to uh, eavesdrop and gain, gain advantage. And so Nixon was forced to resign. So now what we do is, uh, even today, if you take anything and put it in front of the word gate, you know there's some corrupt thing that's happened, right? So there's deflate gate. Huh? Yeah, we know all about that. Right? There's plenty of other gates that have come and gone. So just real, that's what that meant to them. Oh, it's bloodshed. By the way, could you imagine naming your kid Watergate? That's a rough name. Hey, Watergate, what's going on? You know, but how much worse? Hey, bloodshed. <laughs> what are you doing the day after school? Like, that's a tough name. That's a tough name. But God was making a point. Because Jezreel, in that meaning, is describing how God's going to bring judgment on the house of Israel for its bloodshed. Um, the word, if you just look at the Hebrew meaning of the word, it can mean God will scatter as one would, would scatter uh, the chaff when you're, when you're taking the, the wheat in the, in the mill and you throw it in the air and the chaff just goes flying around. That can mean that. But you know what else it can mean? This is interesting and we're going to have to get to this in a, in a few moments. Jezreel can also mean God will scatter as in someone going out to sow seed. It can mean both of those things. And that ambiguity in the word is going to be utilized later by, by Hosea as he continues. But here, it's, it's a nation that is uh, ripe for judgment because of its bloodshed. But it, it moves on from there um, as then Gomer weans uh, Jezreel. She conceives again and brings a daughter into the world, and the Lord says, name her Lo Ruhamah. And, and that word is the word for compassion. Lo is the word not. So it literally means no compassion. And, uh, and we, we find there that, um, again, why is that happening? End of verse 6. I'm not going to have compassion on the house of Israel. I'm not going to forgive them. There's just this, they have, said, they have forgotten me. They've walked away from me. Okay. In many ways, God's giving them what they want. Right? God does that. Uh, he will allow people to go after other things if they refuse him. Essentially, he just steps aside and goes, well, that's what you want, then go ahead. Notice in verse 7, though, I will have compassion on Judah. Huh. Southern kingdom. Why? What's going on with that? Divided kingdom, northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. Well, you want to think about a few things. Number one, remember David? Remember David's family? Remember the Davidic covenant? God made a promise. God's faithful to his promises. So there's some things happening. There's some nuance of difference there in how he's dealing with them. Um, anyway, verse 8, we find that she's just weaned lo Ruhamah, and then she conceives again, gives birth to a son, and the son's name is Lo-Ami. You are not my people. Ami means people. Lo, again, not. You're not my people. And... Uh, by the way, you might think, man, this, this weaning is happening really fast. How can I have children that quickly? Well, in that culture, weaning happened 
approximately over a time, maybe two or three years, okay? So that was just culturally how that worked. And so uh, you can see that time frame showing the continuity of Hosea's family life, but you also see the forbearance of God. He's announcing judgment in an ongoing way through two births in the prophet's life. But the third child signals something that's kind of reached its climax. Not my people signals a total change in God's relationship with Israel. The waywardness of the nation has essentially said from, from our side of the covenant, we don't care, we're, working, we're moving away. And, and the son's um, name there is not just describing how Israel behaved. It's also showing that um, literally you don't belong to Yahweh anymore. By your choices, by your actions, you don't belong to Yahweh anymore. And God's saying, I'm, I'm essentially separating myself from you. So this is sort of a climactic thing. And when we look at that, we just kind of go, man, why would they do that? Why would they be in a covenant with God? And why would they, do, why would they turn after other gods? Brothers and sisters, it shouldn't take us long to stop and go, hold on. When things are prosperous, when things are easy, when things are going along in ways that we kind of plan on or desire, is it not easy for us to forget God too? This passage isn't written so that we can sit back and go, historically, those people were morons. Because as we've said before, when you look at this passage, although we want to think of it as a really ugly portrait, once we get a little closer to it, we realize, oh, it's a mirror. Got it. So the first reason for God's holy jealousy is idolatry is spiritual adultery against God. The second is spiritual adultery lives by deception. That's how it works. And we see that in chapters 2, verses 1, really through 13, but let's look at at the first portion, uh, verses 1 through through 7. Go ahead and turn over there if you would. It says this, Say to your brothers, Ami and your sisters, Ruhamah, contend with your mother, contend for she is not my wife, I am not her husband, and let her put her harlotry from her face and adultery from between her breasts or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born and I will also make her life like a wilderness and make her like a desert land and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry for their mother has played the harlot and she is who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers who will give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. What's happening there? Uh, In many ways, this is God contending with Israel. And and in some ways, it's, it's, it's speaking out to the remnants within Israel, saying, hey, speak to your brothers. There are some who haven't turned away. You call them to repentance. Contend. Show her. She isn't my wife. There's a separation between us. Show her things are not well. When there's prosperity, oftentimes, what do the false prophets do? Hey, everything's great. Everything's fine. You woke up in the morning. You've got everything at your fingertips that you could possibly want. Who needs God? And notice there's consequences because what happens is in God's mercy, he actually will unmask the deception, because these are lies. <laughs> these are all lies. And that's what God does. In God's mercy, he will unmask deception and he will hinder the pathway even to idols. Look at verses six and seven. Therefore, I'm gonna hedge up her way with thorns. I'm gonna build a wall around her so she can't find her paths. She'll pursue her lovers, but she won't overtake them. She will seek them, but she won't find them. And then she will say, I'll go back to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. See what happens? So the false gods are there saying, hey, we've got it. We'll take care of everything for you. The reality is they don't exist, as we saw last week. They're not real. And God hinders and and doesn't allow things to go through. There's barriers. There's ways in which those plans don't come to pass. He unmasks this deception 
by hindering the path to idols. What's part of the deception? Well, all these different things that I enjoy are from the idol. In the case of Baal worship, again, it's a fertility god. So what happens? Well, they would look around and they would see the pagan nations around them erecting their statues to Baal in the middle of the field. And lo and behold, there were crops. And they're like, huh. So they put that Baal thing up and they get crops. That works. I want that. Well, I'll try a little of that too. I'm going to just cover our bases. I'm not going to stop worshiping Yahweh, but I'm going to add a little Baal to Yahweh. Because, look, I mean, if it works for them, it probably worked for us. You see what's shifted now? And all of a sudden, verse 5, the end of verse 5, notice, I will go after my lovers. Why? They gave me my, my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. Guess what? None of those things came from the big wooden pillar thing you put in the middle of your field. All of those things come from the living God alone. But you bought the lie. We do that, don't we? It comes out in a lot of different ways. A lot of times it comes out every time, in some way or another, we are drawn to things other than the Lord himself. It comes out in the ways that we disregard his commands. You know, that question, have you ever lied? Well, a little bit. Whoa, stop. (laughs) That little bit means the answer is yes. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Jesus talks about things like if you've ever looked upon someone in a lustful way, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Our culture is set up to have that happen at every turn. You call someone a fool. I should preface that probably by saying you only call someone a fool. You've committed murder, according to what Jesus says. And every time we do those things, it's because we actually think that in that moment, that is going to work to get us what we need, want, must have. We're no different than those putting up the statue in the middle of the field. But God won't allow that to continue. And so he, he, he also, not only is he going to hinder paths to idols, he's going to demonstrate himself as the sole source of, of provision. Look at verse 8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold. And look at this horrible twist at the end, which they used for Baal. Do you sense the agony in that moment? God's saying, I have loved you. I have lavished every gift imaginable on you. And not only do you forsake me, not only do you walk away from me, but you take the very things I've given you and use them in devotion to another. God is committed to unmasking this deception. So not only does he hinder the pathways to idols, not only does he um, show, demonstrate 
that he is the sole source of provision, but he will also do that by at times hindering creation blessings that come from him to show his people where they really come from. So that's what he does. Look at verses 9. Therefore, I'm going to take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I'll also take away my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness. And I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my hand. I will put an end to her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the bales." When she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. So God here is unmasking the deception by saying, all these things you think are from Baal, guess what? These are creation blessings. I'm the creator. I made them. I'm the sustainer. And I'm going to show you that they don't come from Baal by stopping them. And you've got to appreciate the irony because here it is a judgment of infertility on a land that is supposedly nourished by fertility deities. So he's showing their powerlessness. In the same way in the plagues in Egypt, you recall that, each of the different plagues was against a specific Egyptian god. Every one of them. The representative god of Egypt that would cover that thing Deliberately, each plague was in the face of that false god. Well, here, God's saying, oh, okay, you're going to worship a fertility deity? Great. The reality is, all land fertility comes from me, the creator, so you put your little fertility thing there in the middle of the field, and we'll see what happens. So God takes back those blessings. He takes back the blessing of grain at harvest time. He takes back the blessing of new wine. He takes back the blessing of, of vines and fig trees. Why? Verse 12, you attributed them to your lovers, but they didn't give them to you. He says, I did. Verse 13 is sort of the climax of this um, what we could call a, a, a quarrel speech of sorts. She forgot me. There's anger, there's anguish, there's accusation, there's appeal. It's all in there. And you know, if the passage just ended there, you can say, well, I'm going to close in prayer and we'll just go. I think we all just kind of walk out going, what hope is there? And the answer is, left to ourselves, for Israel or for us, there isn't any. But you know what? He doesn't leave us there. If you can believe that. Stunning, shocking, amazing things unfold. And so we've seen reasons for God's holy jealousy, but now we come to another thing the prophecy gives us, which is responses from God's holy jealousy. Remember how we said that God's holy jealousy flows out of his love? That's what happens. It's his love for us that causes that to be there. It's a reflection of that. And so what happens? Well, the first thing we would see is this. God conquers our adultery by his faithfulness. God conquers our adultery by his faithfulness. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 10. He's just made this proclamation, not my people. And you're thinking, okay. And then look at verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. What does that sound like? Promise to Abraham. The promise made to Abraham generations before. And in the place where it's said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Notice that. There's a, there's a from the lesser to the greater uh, language here. Not only where it was said, you're not my people, not only are you my people, you're my sons. 
Look at verse 11. And the sons of Judah, the sons and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. Wait, this divided kingdom thing. What's going to happen? It's not going to be there anymore. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a unity. There's going to be a, a, a gathering, a oneness to God's people. Notice, and they will appoint for themselves one leader. And they will go up from the land. Notice this, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Wait a minute, I thought Jezreel was bloodshed. Yeah, but it literally means to scatter. So what's happened? God has scattered, but there's going to come a day when he sows. He scatters seed and brings up that which is beautiful. This is looking ahead to the day of the Messiah. This is looking ahead to the day of the Lord. This is looking ahead to the day that Jesus returns. His millennial reign from one united Jerusalem. And notice, God conquers all that adultery by his faithfulness. Why? Beginning of verse 10, because of his promise to Abraham. God doesn't break his promises. Is that a good thing? So the first stunning response from God's holy jealousy is that God conquers our adultery by his faithfulness. The second is just as magnificent and shocking is that God gives compassion to a people who do not deserve it. That's what he does. He gives compassion to people who don't deserve it. Look at what happens in verses 14 through 17. Therefore, behold, right, right after he's, he makes this cry in verse 13 of, of, she forgot me, declares the Lord. Notice what happens in verse 14. Therefore, or because of that, what am I going to do? Behold, I will allure her and bring her out into the wilderness. And you think, to destroy her. No, look, and speak kindly to her. Huh. What's going on? Then I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope, and she will sing there in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and no longer call me Bailey. What's he saying? I'm going to win her back. I'm going to bring her out to the wilderness. What does that sound like? The exodus. Huh, a new exodus. Interesting. I'm going to bring her out into the wilderness, and what am I going to do? I'm going to speak kindly to her, and I am going to provide for her in the wilderness, just as I have before, just as I always have. And you will call me Ishi. What does that mean, my husband? E is the possessive, mine, Ish, husband, you're not going to call me Bailey, my Baal. And then he's going to go on from there. Verse 17, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so they will, not, they will be mentioned by their names no more. So they're, they're gone. Totally swept away. Notice the phrase, in that day. Huh, what should that make us think of? Okay, again, this is Messiah's return, the day of the Lord, the day his millennial kingdom is established on earth. And then we find again, verse 18, in that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make them lie down in safety. What does that sound like? Again, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The tension that we see of, of war, of, of conflict between the, the animal kingdom and creation and, and people, it's all put to, put to peace. And then we find in verse 19 and 20, the word betrothed said over and over again. This is, again, marriage language. Notice who does the betrothing. It's God each time. Check this out. Verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness 
then you will know the Lord. Betroth, betroth, betroth. Who does it? God does it. Unilaterally, he makes it happen. And you will know me. A beautiful word in Hebrew, yadat, has the idea of intimate knowledge. It's used of a husband and wife in their relationship. You will know the Lord. We find that fulfilled even more when Jesus describes, what is eternal life? To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. So he promises peace in the animal realm. He promises peace in the human realm. And the scope of reconciliation expands beyond Yahweh and his people to all of creation. And then verse 21. Notice the the term that recurs over and over again, responding, responding or answering. Verse 21, it'll come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens. They will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. There's sort of a picture of, of if you can picture that you know, back in uh, ancient, or I don't know, centuries ago, you'd have antiphonal choirs. The idea is there'd be a choir over here and a choir over here and a choir up there. And one would sing and the other would sing and the other would sing and they're singing back and forth. That's the picture here of creation. God sings out and then the earth responds. And then what happens is the people respond. And then even Jezreel responds. There's redemption. There's grace, wholeness, salvation, complete. And notice, he has compassion on those who have not obtained compassion. And he says to those who are not my people, you are my people. And the response is, you are my God. This is the amazing element that God gives compassion to a people who do not deserve it. That's us. So in conclusion, here's the question. Where do you find yourself in this story? I don't know. Maybe you think of yourself as a Jezreel, you know? You're indifferent to God. You're happy to ignore him. You're happy to have other priorities in life. You're happy to love other things. That phrase is there to say it's a warning, really. If you would not turn to God, you will end up living scattered. Maybe you're thinking you're more like Lo Rumaha, not pitied. Maybe you sense that you're unloved, unloved by people. Maybe you're sensing you're unloved by God. This passage would tell us that no, there's hope. Turn to him. Receive him. We're told clearly that God sent Christ, his only begotten son, to rescue sinners like you and me. All we need to do is receive that gift by faith. Maybe you sense your low on me, not my people. Maybe you think, yeah, God's the creator. Maybe he's the savior, but he... He doesn't feel like my God, and I certainly don't sense that I'm his child. If he's a dad, he's like a distant dad, or maybe he's an abusive dad, or, or maybe he's just a dad who's abandoned or left. Now, the Bible would say, no, that's not him. He is, he is the God who calls out to all who would turn to him. And what he says is, if you turn to me, if you trust me, I will rescue you. I will make you my child. The only ever faithful father. When you think about this, we need to remember the promise that we find in 1 Peter 
A lot of the language from the passage we've been in is found in this passage when it says in 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You can receive this mercy today. Trust him. Believe. Whoever you see yourself as right now, we all need to recognize something. We are Gomer. And this account invites us to share in Hosea's pain, but the point is that this is God's pain and that we are Gomer. And the way Gomer treated Hosea is the way that we have treated God. And what's God's response? Faithfulness to his covenant, forgiveness to his children. It should shock us. And when we see that, when we see, when we see God's heart in this, and, and when we see, again, the, the, the pain of betrayal, holy pain, for our unholy betrayal. It should cause us to want to repent. But then when we see his response to that in forgiveness and compassion, when we see his work of of giving compassion and grace to people who don't deserve it, that should cause us to want to repent even more. Not to earn it, but in gratitude, saturated response of just overwhelmed awe that he would do that. Well, the prophecy of Hosea is not over. God's going to call to Hosea and tell him to go again to love Gomer. But in the meantime, let's be a people who recognize what our idolatry really is and maybe repent. Not only because of the anguish that it causes God, but also in response to his overwhelming faithfulness and grace. Let's pray. Lord, we ask again that you would help us to receive and take in these truths. Protect us from indifference towards you. Protect us from other priorities overtaking our lives. Protect us from idolatry and all its subtleties. And grace us, Lord, to rejoice that though once we were not a people, we now are your people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. All in the Messiah, Jesus. Thank you for betrothing us to you forever, for betrothing us to you in righteousness, for betrothing us to you in faithfulness. And grace us to respond with joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.